find that. You will find that because Matthew is a tax collector. He writes as sermons, like a seminars. <clears throat> Therefore, when you see the sermon of, it's very likely you will find it in Matthew. That's a particular teaching style. And again, we talked about it from a perspective of a director. The, the focus is on the hill. There are five different times you see the king of the hill. <clears throat> like the Sermon on the Mount. Mount is short for? Mountain. Mountain. Mm-hmm. Sermon on the Mountain is the idea. When Jesus goes up on the Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives, for instance, and he speaks about the Sermon of the End Times, which he does in chapters 24 and 25. These are clearly mountains. That's the whole point. Uh, and then, of course, at the end, when Jesus says a mountain that he had reserved or he had already appointed to them. So he goes back. That whole thing ends. And it ends with a king saying this. Hear me. All authority has been granted to me. Sounds like a great statement to say for a king. And again, he says, go therefore, because all authority has been granted to me, I have that authority to grant it to you. Go into all the world and make disciples. Be ambassadors now. Okay, so that's our whole idea of the king thing. And by the way, we can focus on that, but again, we need to get to Luke. The longest book, we better get into it. But it's important to note that. By the way, again, when you see more than one person in a scene, like we know that when we see the man of the gatherings, the man of Gregesines, the guy that we call Legion, there are actually two men, and Matthew makes that clear. But, but Mark and Luke focus on the one guy for their specific reasons. But in, unique to the Gospel of Matthew, he will show us the two, because the issue isn't the individual, it's Jesus' authority over those demons. Jesus' authority over blindness, because that's what a king does. He has that dominion. So it's not just blind Bartimaeus, it's two blind guys. How many were there? Well, there were two. It doesn't disagree. The director, Mark, wants you to see the one guy because of what he's emphasizing with Jesus in Mark. So, with, Luke, with uh, Matthew, we have the sermons, we have everything emphasizing a king. Even down to when Jesus is uh, hanging on the cross, of course, the emphasis is that there's a sign in three languages that say Jesus, the king of the Jews. That shouldn't surprise us. Y'all with me on that? Mark. By the way, again, we don't meet Mark until the book of Acts, uh, at least by name. We meet him first by knowing that his mom has a house in Jerusalem where people are praying. By the way, at an interesting time, Peter's arrested. He comes out, and they don't even believe him. They're praying for his release, but they don't believe he's released. There you go. Uh, but it's very fairly likely, and again, this is for review of last week, that Mark may have been interviewing Peter, and we can, you can get the uh, MP3 for last week to kind of help emphasize that. But it's important to recognize that Mark emphasizes Jesus as a servant, the servant under all. So Matthew the king over all, Mark, Jesus the servant under all. Uh, the greatest service, by the way, and, it's, and of course in this gospel, things like he wants to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven must be a servant of all. I would expect to find that in Mark, and you do. Uh, it, by the way, there's no reason to give us a birth account. Why would you give a birth account to a servant? It's irrelevant. Start it where the guy starts serving, and it starts with the Gospel of John the Baptist. Does that make sense? So, uh, we get that. Also, of course, in Mark, it's the shortest one, but it is the one with the least amount of teaching per capita. In other words, there's no lengthy teaching. There's a couple teaching vignettes, if you will. But as a servant, and it's important to know, you teach people to serve, and let me say this clearly, you teach people to serve by serving in front of them. It's important to know, and it's hard to raise up servants if you ain't serving. And you can teach the doctrines on servanthood all you want, but no matter what doctrines you teach, in the end of it all, the way that you serve is the way people will wind up serving in the, in the like of it. And I think it's perfect and brilliant that that's the way it would be. The greatest service 
to preach the gospel. Two words emphasized in the gospel of Mark. And it's important to note his, as where, Mark, where Matthew focuses on the hills that the king stands upon, if you will, Mark focuses on the crowds, the multitudes. And when you see the word multitude, more than any other per capita, it's going to be in Mark. Because once Jesus starts serving supernaturally, there's always a crowd showing up. And you will also find the word immediately, more than the other Gospels combined, because Matthew wants you to recognize Jesus was always ready. And so we see the focus is the immediate multitude. Does that make sense? So what's the greatest so how, what's the greatest way to end? What's the greatest service for a servant? And again, where I'm reading Mark with the idea of I want to be a servant. I know that's the trajectory. I go from sinner to saved, sanctified student, servant. That's where we wind up. And if I realize that's servanthood 101, that's my class in servanthood is the gospel of Mark. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Should that make sense that would be the gospel of Mark? Absolutely. He's been working to that the entire book. So when you see the emphasis on preaching, when you see the emphasis of the gospel more times in the gospel of Mark than all the others combined, clearly there's a point there. Because, and, and it's important to note, as a servant, all the other service I does, that I does. All the other service I do, all the other service I do will pale in comparison to preaching the gospel to someone. And all the other stuff will be infinitely less meaningful and best if the gospel's not there for that person, if that person has it. Now, you get me on that so far. So now we get to the gospel of Luke. We have two other things, man and God. Luke is going to focus on man. And who better than a doctor? And we know that he's a doctor because he's called the beloved physician in 2 Timothy 4.11. Luke, by the way, hear me on this, the longest book by word, to give you an idea, Matthew, though it has more chapters, 18,346 words. Mark, 11,304. John, 15,635. Luke, 19,482. It's the longest book. 35% of the Gospel of Luke is unique material. 35%. There's one book that has more than that in unique material. Do you know which one? The Gospel of John. 94, 92-94% of it is unique material. That's quite something to say. Now, chapters 1 and 2, the early years, basically this whole section is unique material for what it's worth. It's important to note some very important things in this. First of all, in the beginning of it, it is the one gospel that has a clear recipient spelled out to us and a clear mode or method of writing. He calls his recipient Theophilus. Theo, like theologian, means God. Philas, like phileho, means friend or lover. So it's, his name means lover of God or God's friend. So you know he wrote this to you, right? He wrote it to me. But it is also the only one, and hear me on this, that's denoted as an orderly account, he says. Now, do you know what an orderly account means? It means he's actually writing it chronologically. It is the, and hear me on this, it is the only gospel listed as being chronological. 
Some they'll say, well, in the Gospel of John, Jesus clears the temple in chapter 2. In the Gospel of Luke, he clears it when Jesus makes it, after he makes his triumphal entry. Which one did it happen? Did it happen twice? I'm like, John never said he wrote an orderly account. He's writing thematically. Luke, on the other hand, tells you, if there's one Gospel you want to get the chronology from, you've got to get it from Luke. Does that make sense? As a matter of fact, Luke, think of Luke not only as a doctor, but also as a journalist. Luke What's clear in his first four verses is he interviews a batch of people, a lot of people, so that he can write this account. Now, why are you with me so far? Remember yes. the first week we had um, the scenario of um, two people watch it, two people who saw the account. Right. And then, just to get an overview, so who, now we're up to Luke, who are, using that um, analogy, who are the people who saw the account, who are the people who didn't, who are the people who collected it? Okay, yeah, so it does, he doesn't say who it is, mm -hmm. just eyewitnesses. Mm -hmm. So my, my guess is he interviewed enough, again, this is a guess, he interviewed a lot of the other disciples that never actually got to write a gospel like this. Um, he interviewed a lot of people that may have saw, he may have interviewed the centurion that saw Jesus when uh, he was being crucified. Interesting, it's in this particular one, the centurion doesn't say son of God, he says righteous man. I was Mark one of the guys who saw it firsthand. I... It's, you know, to be honest, we can't say either way. Mm -hmm. We only know when we're introduced to him. If he was someone who saw it, he was young when he saw it. So, yeah, this is, that's a really good question. More than likely, the general consensus is that he was interviewing Peter, so he's interviewing a person who saw it firsthand. But it doesn't mean he wasn't there. And again, I only want to say what Scripture says in it, and Scripture doesn't make clear. But Luke, what's clear in all of this is that he is... Uh, he says that he has perfect understanding and that was understanding to the end, to the rightful end of it. But it doesn't say that he has it from first-hand information like he personally observed it. So the recipient's Theophilus, it's an orderly, linear, sequential account. Other words, with this. And he says that you may know with certainty those things in which you were instructed, which tells us that this guy, Theophilus, was a disciple. He was a student learning. Now, you with me so far? Now, <clears throat> remember we last week we broke up the Gospels into three historical sections. There's Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Then Jesus has walked down from Galilee to Jerusalem. And then Jesus' last week in Jerusalem. In the Gospel of Luke, uniquely is emphasized that middle portion. That's where Mark and Matthew, for the most part, emphasize Jesus' Galilee ministry. Luke emphasizes that, that walk down from Galilee to the time where he does his triumphal entry. As a matter of fact, from nine, chapter 9, verse 51 to chapter 19, verse 27, basically 10 chapters, 11 chapters, are given to that walk down. And some of the most beautiful and infinitely intimate stories that we get are from that trip down. Now, uh, Luke, by the way, he's, he's, by the way, never mentioned by name in any of the historical books. Did you know that? But because we're so confident that he was the writer not only of the Gospel of Luke, but also of the book of Acts, that's how we know that he was in the book of Acts, because something unique starts to take place in Acts chapter 16, verse 10, after... Paul gets that vision of a Macedonian man after being stopped from going into Bithynia and Asia. He winds up in Troas. 
Because it's there it says after that. Now listen, now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. Something unique changes in Acts chapter 16, verse 10, and that is that whoever is writing the book of Acts, which we are confident is, is Luke, that he's now in the story. He's clearly going with Paul from Troas to Macedonia. And he writes we until he gets to Philippi, and then it's they again. And then Paul comes back to Philippi, and then it becomes we again. So you kind of get the idea. So, so Luke, <coughs> Luke wrote the book of Acts for me. Yes. As a matter of fact, it's basically the sequel of this book. He'll even say so at the beginning of the book of Acts. Was he with Paul at every stop? No, he was not. So how would he have known about Paul getting shipwrecked and everything? He would have had to hear it from Paul. It's likely that Luke was even there at the end when Paul was in prison. On that first one, interviewing him for a lot of that. And so that's really one of the fun things in the book of Acts, is to look at where the we happens. You go, oh, Luke shows up. Oh, Luke shows up in Troas. He went up in Philippi. That's all they. And he gets back in Philippi. Hey, it's we again. I get it. He left, he left Luke. And, but let's face it. A guy that's getting beat up and stoned to death and all these other things, it's great to have a traveling doctor with you. Mm-hmm. you know? So does that make sense so far? So again, Matthew, king of the hill. Does that make sense? Mark, the immediate crowds, the servant of the immediate crowds. But Luke gives us the man redeemer. Now, as he emphasizes, not just that Jesus had to be a man, the reason Jesus had to be a man was because the only way to redeem someone is to be their kin. And that's what um, the gospel, of, I'm sorry, the book of Hebrews says, which is, inasmuch as they, they shared in flesh and blood, he himself likewise clothed himself in that he himself became flesh and blood, that he might redeem those who were under the law. And the idea of it is, is you couldn't be you couldn't be redeemed by somebody that wasn't part of your family. So Jesus came in to be part of the family so he could redeem us. As a matter of fact, it's important to note the word redeem is exclusive to the Gospel of Luke. Did you know that? So if you hear the word redeem or redeemed, you know it came out of Luke. Now understand, he couldn't by his by the laws that he has established, he couldn't redeem us without being a man himself. Does that make sense? But because of that, beautiful things happen. So here's the beautiful part, and this is one of the th- reasons I love sitting around like this, and this is why I wished I could have gotten food. I tried, but they don't have any share platters. We'll suggest them. Is remember how Matthew focused on the hill and Mark focused on the crowds? Luke focuses on the table. As a matter of fact, a fifth of the entire gospel involves food. He knows how to speak mm-hmm. to a man, John. And I love it. It's like, and if you're fasting, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but it's like it's important to note that you're going to find Jesus around a table so many times in this book. That whole Mary and Martha thing and Mary's making food, oh yeah, I guess that would be Luke, wouldn't it? Because he's around the table. You're going to find that a lot. Does that make sense so far? Now, as where Mark teaches me servanthood 101. Y'all with me on that? Luke teaches me Christianity 101. What does it mean to be a man filled with God? And that's the beauty of it. Is I'm learning how to be a Christian when I read Luke. Does that, does that make sense? So there's going to be two emphases, and do not miss these emphases. First is the necessity of prayer. And I'm like, hey, if Jesus, God, who, by the way, and it's important, what Jesus, what we learn in Luke 
is that Jesus, though being God and therefore having access to all the power, has forfeited all that power and only take what God the Father would give him. So when we read Jesus couldn't do a miracle someplace. We had the power to, but the Father was like, not here. He was only going to do what the Father was going to do through him. And he was only going to say what the Father was going to say through him. And you know what's so beautiful about Luke? That puts him in the same place as us. I love that. So there is a necessity of prayer. And we'll see it way emphasized. And, and like these beautiful little additions in this. Like, by the way, when the Holy Spirit lands upon Jesus like a dove as Jesus is being baptized, should it surprise you, unique to, unique to the Gospel of Luke, it was while Jesus was praying. Mm. It is important to note that it tells us when Jesus picked his 12, Jesus did one thing right before that. Do you know what he did before he picked his 12? He pulled an all-nighter. He spent the entire night praying. Guess what gospel that's in? Yep. And there's one other thing. The reliance on the Holy Spirit. Shouldn't that make sense that it would be in this book? Because we're looking at humanity here. You'd say, well, wouldn't that be great to have emphasized as a servant? No. See, the bottom line is, if I can get it focused on being a Christian, then I'm the overflow of that I can serve. Otherwise, it's like, well, I can be a Christian and be like a lousy, not spiritual person. And then I can try to serve and get spiritual. It would be wiser to do that as a Christian. Wouldn't that make sense? He's emphasizing as a human being, as a human being who's seeking to, be, to follow Christ, then we should say, boy, if Jesus needed to get away and pray, I think we should. If Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit, then so we should we. So when Jesus says, for instance, you know, if you ask your father for a piece of, for bread, will he give you a stone? Don't you find it interesting he says that? After being tempted the way he was? You know, if you ask him for an egg, will he give you a scorpion? Hey, Dad, can I have an egg for breakfast? Sure, here, have a scorpion. What kind of dad would do that, right? And he goes, if you, your, if your fathers, who are evil because they're human, know how to give good gifts to, your, to you, how much more will your heavenly Father give you good gifts if you ask him? I'll give you what, but not in Luke. He develops that and he says, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him? Unique to the Gospel of Luke. I thought you were Jesus was saying to get you who are evil, so that you're saying to the disciples, it's going to look at it. If your dad who's evil knows how to give you good things, and now you're going to ask the perfect dad who's not evil, wouldn't he give you better than what your father asks you for? That's the key of that. Does that make sense? So again, man redeemer, at the table, key necessities, food, reliance on the Holy Spirit. So things you'll look for if you, when you read this book, births. I remind you, Luke is a doctor. Every birth is in this book exclusively. We do not read Jesus being born, though clearly he is, in the Gospel of Matthew. We read that he, we read that he was, and that wise men show up later. But the birth itself, exclusive to the Gospel of, of Luke. The, the birth of John the Baptist, exclusive to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Jesus needing to be circumcised, exclusive to the Gospel of Luke. The sacrifice you give for your firstborn boy, exclusive to the Gospel of Luke. Jesus being presented in the temple for that sacrifice, exclusive to the Gospel of Luke, which includes Simeon and Anna showing up in their prophecies. Exclu by the way, 
God makes really clear, the Holy Spirit did this through them. They're just human beings too, but guess what happens when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of them? They do cool things. Note that, because you're a human being too. And he goes, that happens exclusively to the Gospel of Luke. Does that make sense? By the way, also, one unique experience that happens after Jesus is a baby and before Jesus is a man. Can anyone tell me how old Jesus was with this one unique experience recorded in the Gospels? He was 12. And he was being presented in the, in the temple. Why would you present a boy in the temple at age 12? Let me give you a hint. Why would you present a Jewish boy in the temple at age 12? I thought it's 13, the bar mitzvah, no? But it's bar mitzvah. But it, isn't it 13? It's 12, 13. Today they make it 13, but it was 12, 13. And there's also a really kind of fun key. The whole point of it is, is this is something that you would say you do to a human being. And you will find it only in the Gospel of Luke. Now, follow me on this for one quick second, a side note, but then we'll start walking through it. Does that make sense? The scepter shall not depart until Shaddach comes. Are you familiar with that prophecy? Genesis chapter 49. There is a time that was the beginning of the Jewish atheist movement. Are you familiar with this? 7 AD. Now, can anyone tell me when Jesus was born? Just give me a year. 5 BC. Do you know why we know it has to be 4 or 5 BC? Because Herod the Great died in 4 BC. So if we're going to actually take Matthew's account as I do as fact, Jesus had to be born before 4 BC. Does that make sense? Now, there's no 0 B.C., by the way, or 0 A.D. And there's no 0 in it. It goes from 1 B.C. to 180. Now, follow me in this. Is that a bit stupid, though? Like, why is it, why is it B.C. when it wasn't? Yeah. Isn't that funny? So Jesus was born before Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I don't get it either. But you know why? Because you knew you had a few hundred years, and then everything's a little game scrabble. Um, but now... Scepter shall not depart until Shiddach comes. Shiddach, they clearly interpret as Messiah. Y'all with me so far? What does that word mean? Shiddach literally means the rest. And so they're like, well, this is the Messiah. He's going to come and he's going to bring his rest. Well, what does it mean for the scepter to depart? It means you lose the right to self-rule. In 7 AD, Caponius, an easy name for me to remember coming from Chicago, Caponius. <laughs> Got it, not in you. Ruling Judea removes the right of capital punishment from the Jewish people. 7 AD. And the Jewish people start to say, the word of God has failed. Why? Because the scepter shall not depart until Shalach comes. Are you with me on this? What does capital punishment mean? The right to kill somebody for their crime. You couldn't stone them, so forth. Does that make sense? So if Jesus is born in, let's say, 5 B.C., when is he presented in the temple? 6, 7 A.D. Jesus is presented in the temple as a man. Remember, that's the whole idea. Now you're accountable, Daniel. And then the rite of capital punishment comes. The scepter shall not depart from Israel. 
from Judah, by the way, until Shabbat comes. Just like was promised. As long as you're willing to accept that Jesus is the Messiah, you don't have a problem with that verse at all. Does that make sense? Hmm. So, a little something to play with in your mind. Oh, and then the Jewish atheist movement started, you said. Because they didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And therefore, we lost the right of capital punishment, and the Messiah didn't show up. What do you do with that? How did they exercise their religion? Did they not do anything at all anymore? Did they just there go? Were, a lot of the Sadducees didn't believe in an afterlife, angels, or God. They were just they granted they were granted great chunks of land because they were part of the family of the of uh, the Zadokites. That's where the Sadducees come from. The Zadokites, Zadok, the priest, the high priest during David's day. So, yeah, as sad as it is, imagine if you will, everyone from your family gets the prime property. You know, you get Buckingham Palace simply because you have a, the same surname. You know, all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, I'm a Windsor. Oh, but you have no national pride or no, you know, no commitment to the country. Imagine what would happen in the country. Unfortunately, that was happening. And that was part of the problem that you find is that because of that, the Sadducees, the most important thing was the temple. And of course, then they'll say Jesus blasphemes the temple. Well, they're trying to get the Sadducees against them. Okay. Now, did your brain gelatinize enough to start walking through the book? You there? Thanks, Jaden. That's a vote of confidence, man. I love you for that. Okay, here we go. I'm going to go quick, but again, the whole idea of all of this is, oh, there's one other kind of key thing that I do love in this, and that's God kind of does focus on an underdog. He tends to really like them. I do like that, by the way. Now, let's hop from table to table and meet Jesus, the man, the kinsman redeemer of the underdogs. <laughs> Chapters 1 and 2 Birth, circumcision, presentation 12 years of bar mitzvah All exclusive And by the way look at If you look at your handout too That should help you You'll be able to walk through it this way Tim, will you grab one of those For Joanna as well? Oh. It'll just be easier to, I mean you're certainly welcome To keep following that too I just want to make it So that you know how far we have to go um, and what we see, by the way, is the Holy Spirit at work. We see it in regards to John the Baptist. We see it the second time with Mary, of course, obviously overshadowing her so that the child will be called the son of the Most High. The third time with Elizabeth when the baby, her baby, that's John the Baptist, jumps in her womb, if he will. The fourth time, of course, when uh, Zacharias is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies, and then with Simeon and Anna, six different times at least in chapters 1 and 2, the Holy Spirit is doing something to someone. That's pretty darn unique. We mean an underdog priest, Zacharias, unique to the Gospel of Luke. By the way, you're not going to meet him in any of the other Gospels. Thank the Lord for Luke, or we wouldn't know he existed. We obviously knew John had a dad. We wouldn't know what his name was. Interesting. Um, he's an unlikely candidate because he's an elderly man with an elderly wife who you wouldn't expect to be having a baby. Um, but to me, one of the unique and strange things is, is when the angel speaks to him, where, what's he doing? He doesn't believe. He's praying. Yeah, I mean, you're right. As a matter of fact, and it's important to note the difference between Mary and Zacharias' responses. But Zacharias is praying. He is part, he's of, the, of the tribe of Abia. Remember that, uh, that David and Solomon broke up all of the priests that served into 24 different groups so that each one had a half a month's service was the idea. And you drew lots on which guy got to go in and pray. Now, you're standing before the veil. The Holy of Holies is, in, is on the other side of that veil. 
to the left is your lampstand, your menorah. To your right is the table of showbread. This is God as the way. This is God as provider. And you are praying. You are lighting the incense. And I remind you, you were supposed to pray until that incense burned out. That was the idea. You read the conversation they have, and you read that conversation that lasts you about a minute. And the people outside are wondering what's taking him so long. That tells you what prayer has become by this point. It's apparently, well, pop in, you light a little bit and get out, and you're good. Well, that's what can happen with Christians, me included, if we're not careful. But man, if it could be what this is, where you're actually, like Joshua, sitting in there until all that goes up and comes down and saturates you, and you come out and people smell it on you. You've been praying. Do the Jewish people, or did they at that time, actually pray in the way that we would pray, as in, like, wouldn't they just recite scripture, basically? You know, it was supposed to be both. And you know what happens when the relationship strains is you only go with rote. Does that make sense? That's what they do nowadays, don't they? Just rec- I mean, not just, I mean, the Word of God is so powerful, right? Yeah, you know, it's, but it's, unfortunately, most of it isn't the Word of God. I mean, it is the Shema, that is the Word of God. And there are some verses being quoted, that is the Word of God. But a lot of it is other things that now you've now made a, a practice of. And we can do that, too. And you ever heard that now I lay me down to sleep? Or, um, if you pray for your food regularly, does it become a ritual, a routine? Or, I mean, you know, it just becomes natural to do that because we become creatures of habit. All of that said, he says, how will I know this? In other words, give me a sign. That is a, that is a statement of unbelief. For which and he says, well, I'll tell you what. We're, I'll, I know how to end this argument. You are not talking until this is fulfilled. But it says, John the Baptist will be a prophet of the highest notice to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of sins. It's important to note the Redeemer, that's what he's going to do. By the way, Gabriel, you're probably aware of, is unique to three books. Daniel, Matthew, and Luke. Can I ask something in the first chapter? Sure. It says um, that both of them... Um, I forgot the English names, but Elisheva and I don't know his name, mm-hmm. Zachariah, and they list like it pleases God, or then in a footnote it says they both were justified before God. Oh, How yeah. is that possible when there wasn't Jesus yet? Right. Well, and that's the term that's used is a term that says that God, they stood in a right standing before you. In other words, their behavior was acceptable to God. Was the idea. But not like God declared them righteous, because you're right, righteousness is only through Jesus. But there is, within a Jewish community, there is a righteous behavior, and then there's a positional righteousness with God. That can't happen without Jesus. You're right. But in other words, their behavior was one that pleased God. But, even though the behavior was one that pleased God, this guy's still going to get an argument with an angel, who, by the way, don't miss, shows up right in front of the table of showbread, which is the testimony of God's provision. I think that's fitting. And he's like, wait a minute, you're telling me God's going to provide? I'm an old guy. How is this going to happen? And you'd say, well, man, you're old enough enough to know how this is going to happen. But you get the idea. And so, by the way, because Luke is writing as a journalist, he's going to give you the most details that are going to be more like, this guy was in office and this guy was doing this. All of that kind of sort of political settings and all of that, expect them to be in the Gospel of Luke because he's setting it up like you're reading the BBC. So, for instance, Caesar Augustus, that the whole world would be registered. This took place where Quirinius was, uh, Quirinius was governing Syria. All went to be registered. And it tells us the birth of Jesus was, uh, and by the way, uh, as far from advantaged and privileged as one could get. 
This is the only place we get the nativity scene and we get as a passing note, there was no room in the inn. That, of course, becomes the focus of the nativity scene, and yet, really, it's just a passing statement. The bottom line is that there is this super crazy thing, and that is that a well-cared-for baby is put in the least cared-for place. And what would it be like to be Mary and be like, you know, here I am, I'm carrying your, your, your child, and you'd think that Hilton would be having a space, I mean, you'd think you'd be opening these doors for me, but God is constantly showing us underdogs. And it's important to note, by the way, you're probably aware, has any of you ever seen a, um, a manger? Do you know what word we get from that in the English? Mangy. <laughs> the French word means to eat, so that works out, like pre de manger. But have you ever seen they carve them out of stone? Because you know one thing that Israel grows more than anything else? Rock. There's rock all over the place there. They can grow rock really well. And they carve things out of rock because wood is still not, I mean, several reasons, but traditionally people, when they ravish your land, they cut down your trees. And, uh, and usually, to be honest, if you looked at this table and you carved a big spot in the middle out of the stone of it and you put food there for animals, large animals to eat, that's a manger. Are you with me so far on that? Now, let me ask you, where would you put this if you were going to feed large animals? Do you tuck it in a barn? Do you put it in a cave? Outside. You put it outside. Every manger that I've ever seen is outside. To this day, they're outside. I mean, I, and I'm not trying to rip on our material scenes because they're still cool. But it's important to know Jesus is more than likely laid outside, but swaddled is what a parent that cares does to their child. They wrap him in salt, and they basically swap him in linen and put him in the oven for 45 minutes. Uh, sorry. But it's important, it's important to note that, in other words, this is an extremely weird, well-cared-for baby in a very uncared-for place. That's why they can meet, we meet our other underdogs, the shepherds. We wouldn't expect wise men with great gifts showing up for a man. That's for a king. That's Matthew. But we expect lowly guys and wise. I mean, imagine they know what a manger is because they feed animals. So the angel says, Today is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And Savior is a key focus on this. The shepherds go. They come with haste. They find Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. And like all firstborn males, Jesus must be presented, circumcised, and have redemption. A fundamental aspect of this, by the way, and I don't want you to miss this, that when they come to present Jesus, by the way, that should be 40 days. Why 40 days? Because that's what Leviticus tells you, is that the gal should be tucked away for 40 days so that she can then go out because she's actually easy, she can contract a lot of things because of her blood loss. Does that make sense? By the way, oh, anyways, we'll talk about that. But do you know what the offering they give when they go to the temple? Turtle doves. Why is that so imper important? Uh, Exodus chapter 13, verse 15, chapter 34, verse 20. But here, listen to this. Leviticus chapter 12. That's where they're getting this from. Verse 6. When the days of her purification are filled, this is for any woman who's had a baby, whether a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering, or a young pigeon or turtle doves. 
as a sin offering, door to the tabernacle meeting, two, day, two verses later. If she is not able to bring a lamb, why couldn't she bring a lamb? There's a, there's a simple reason why you can't bring a lamb more than any other. You can't afford it. You're poor. She may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. One is a burnt offering and one is a sin offering. Specifically, it just says they brought two turtle doves. What that tells us is that is a poor person's offering. Is that fair? You know what that tells us? Forty days in, the wise men haven't shown up yet. So the wise men showed up, they'd have gold, and they'd be able to buy themselves a really nice lamb. Does that make sense? They clearly have to show up after this, or someone's cheating the system, and I'd like to think Mary wasn't doing that. We meet two other underdogs, Simeon and Anna, and of course they both make beautiful prophecies. And again, I want to move forward, but at least I need to get all of that happening. And of course Jesus presented as a toddler, and then Jesus showing up at 12. All of that, of course, is going to be Luke and Luke alone. Okay, you with me so far? Now we can pick it up. Jesus is, uh, chapter 3, now we see, by the way, for what it's worth, we see the John the Baptist show up, but it says, 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Herod, of Judea, Herod being Tetrarch. Where am I going to expect to find all of that kind of information? That's Luke. Again, he's the journalist. He's giving us all that setting. John the Baptist came, and he, of course he starts preaching the remission of sins. As expected, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And as expected, Luke emphasizes how Jesus was praying when, when the Holy Spirit showed himself. Chapter 3, verse 21. Now, we'll go back to these for a moment, and I'll emphasize these because I'm going to ask you these. Three statements. Hear them again. You are my beloved son, and in you I'm well pleased. Speaking to you and you. This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. That's speaking to them and them. You are my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Speaking to him and them. Does that make sense? Now, we've got a king, a man, and a servant. Which one is the king? Yeah. Them and them. Hey, everyone, this is my beloved son in whom I'm all pleased. Everyone needs to know. Do you see that? He's speaking to them, to the crowd, to everybody else. You're with me in that. Which one would be you are in you I'm all pleased? Where do you need to hear that? As a servant or as a person? There's the danger. You've got to get it as a person. Or you know what will happen? You'll think the reason he's so well-pleased is in your service. Does that make sense? It's important to know when the Father is saying this, has Jesus healed anyone? Has he teached any sermons yet? Taught, teached. Where am I from? <laughs> he taught any sermons yet? Has he raised any dead? So how could the Father be so well-pleased? Because this is my son. If you can't get it there, your service will always be dampered. Does that make sense? You've got to know the reason why your father is so pleased with you is because you're his. You've got to know, I pray I can demonstrate that with my children. I delight in them, certainly not by what they do. Often what they do doesn't delight me, but they are still mine, and in that I delight in them. Now, that puts us at the servant. You are my beloved son in whom? 
as a servant, know you're still God's beloved son and let God let everyone else know that he's pleased with you. Or you'll try to prove it. Is that fair enough? Genealogy, last part of chapter 3. It goes backwards because that's the way the Greeks do it. The, the Hebrews do it from old times to now. The Greeks go backwards. And the genealogy goes from Jesus through Mary. The emphasis, by the way, in Matthew, the angel speaks to Joseph. Because remember, kings are handed out from guy to guy. But in, in Luke, focusing on the man, you're focusing on the gal. Because babies are born through women. Does that make sense? By the way, can I just say, speaking for our gender, hallelujah. Uh, and so he takes the genealogy back through Mary all the way back to Adam. Because you can't get more man than coming from the first one. Does that make sense? All right. Let's go on. Are, are you uh, able to breathe? Am I, okay. Chapter 4. The temptation, Jesus' rejection, the demoniac. Capernaum. In chapter 4, it's important to note the Spirit fills Jesus and leads Jesus into the wilderness to challenge, to take on this challenge of Satan's temptation. It's important to note, and I love this, you do not have to be God to win Satan's temptations. You just have to be filled with them. Let me say that again. You don't have to be God. That would be in the Gospel of John. You don't have to be God to win Satan's temptations. You have to be filled with them to win. Which is good, because I'm not God, and we're all aware of that. But I can be filled with them, and I can win. By the way, you're probably aware of the temptation story in three of the four Gospels. You're not going to find it in John, because God's not tempted, and you're not going to find it in him. In the Gospel of Luke, the emphasis is not on the showdown that you saw, by the way, in Matthew, because it's a king versus a ruler, if you will. And here, it's 40 full days of this nastiness. But when Jesus wins, 4.14, Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit. Notice again the emphasis on the Holy Spirit there. He heads to the synagogue, and he starts to speak. This is, by the way, Nazareth, where they're going to reject him. And he starts by saying, and he reads from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Notice the emphasis again. I want to remind you, when Jesus is being tempted, by the way, remember the last one, sort of your death blow? There's got to be one that we just call the throat shot. You just kind of know when a guy starts really going down, he's going to go for the throat. Well, the last one in Matthew was, you showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Doesn't it make sense? That would be in Matthew. But the last one here is that he shows him, he says, throw yourself off the temple. Show off. It's the pride of life. And pride is the one thing that will take anyone down at the mountain. Okay, I'm moving on. Chapter 5. Jesus calls the fishermen. That miraculous catch of fish, by the way, with Simon Peter, and he falls at Jesus' knees and says, Leave me. I'm a sinful man, unique to the gospel of Luke. It, it, by the way, does show not just four fishermen, because I think it's a very kind thing for God to say about them, because they never seem to catch fish without Jesus' help. Have you noticed that? They sure try a lot, but they're not getting anywhere without Jesus. And I do love this, because it does put them in the category of underdog. And boy, Simon, one of the reasons we love him is because he's such a doofus. At least for me, because I know Daniel was telling me he relates to him, because he's a doofus, right? I'm like, I don't get that. I'm just kidding. Um, 
After recruiting them, by the way, it tells us that and he cleanses the leper. It says Jesus, chapter 5, verse 16. Don't miss that. It says Jesus often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Expect it there. Paralytic is brought to Jesus. And we read something insightful, unique to the gospel of Luke about the Pharisees and the teachers standing by. It says, on a certain day as he was teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. It says, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. What you're going to find is if someone actually tells you you cannot deny or reject the will of God for your life, they haven't read Luke. Because what we're going to read is it says that the Pharisees denied or rejected the will of God for them refusing to be baptized by John. I think that's kind of key. Can you say, can someone reject the will of God? Well, according to Scripture, they did. And God actually used the term reject the will of God. I have to go with what it said. And you know what happens? He calls Matthew always, by the way, he always calls Matthew after this paralytic story in all of the Gospels. And guess what, guess what he does in the Gospel of Luke? You know what Matthew does? He makes some food when they have a feast at his house. For which then, of course, people get all in a hizzy about it. The religious leaders. Chapter 6. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Tension mounts about Jesus at this time, specifically about Shabbat law or Shabbat tradition. With the mounting demands before him, Jesus chooses to delegate. But if Jesus is going to choose the twelve, what's the one thing we know he's going to do first? He's going to pray. There's no major thing that Jesus does without prayer. It says, it came to pass in those days, chapter 6, verse 12, he went on a mountain to pray, continued all night in prayer to God. I tell you, that's pretty simple and clear. Unique to the Gospel of Luke, Jesus, we get a abridged version of the Beatitudes. Look at verse 6, verse 22. Blessed are you when men hate you. Does that make any sense at all to you? Boy, when people hate you, aren't you just... And by the way, blessed, it just means that you're stoked. I can't use the word happy (laughs) because happy comes from the word happening. In other words, it's based on some experience or like your circumstances. But where I come from, we use the word stoked. I'm so stoked. I mean, it's like, yeah, I think you're kind of stoked. And he's like, dude, you're... I mean, this is like, you know, this is the surfer Jesus, right? You know, dude, you're stoked when men hate you. And you're like, no, not really. But this is the one that stands out. And when they exclude you, Luke uniquely records that statement. And I think that's a very human statement to record, isn't it? Because we as human beings hate to be excluded, even by people we don't want to hang out with. Okay, you know those commands that are really hard for Jesus to to obey? Not for Jesus to obey, for us to obey that Jesus gives us? I want to warn you, I'm about to read you one of my favorite commands Jesus gives. You ready for this? Listen to this statement. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil. By the way, not just that, but for the Son of Man's sake. Notice he doesn't even say the Son of God's sake. For the Son of Man's sake. Clearly him, though. Listen to this command. You ready for this, John? Okay, man. This is obedience. Ready? Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. That's a command. For indeed, your reward is great in heaven. Try this one. Oh my goodness. Someone's like, 
And dude, I hate you because you like Jesus. Jump for joy. See what that does to him. Yeah! I warn you, it's a command. Deal with it. For indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. And then he goes into, but whoa, if you like are the thing now, but they hate God. If they hate God and they love you, something shouldn't be right about that. But man, if they hate God and they have a problem with you, I mean, let's face it, they could hate God and you could still have make them have a problem with you. It has nothing to do about Jesus. You could be a giant jerk and that has nothing to do with it. But, if you look like Jesus and they hate Jesus, they're not going to like you. And, if, and if, you, if you can't do it better than him, you can't do Jesus better than Jesus. And it's like, look, and I'm not saying make enemies, but it doesn't matter who you are. You're going to have them. Some people are going to hate you because you're happy. And then you want to be miserable to make them happy. Then people are going to hate you because you're miserable. And if you try to be in the middle, someone's going to hate you because you're a robot. I mean, you get it. And like in the end of it all, you love Jesus. And then you, at least you're like, you know what? God's cool with me and I'm cool with me. And if someone has a problem with that, I guess that's their problem. But it's amazing how many people I could try to, and I've tried to make people happy in ways. And Paul says, as much as depends on you, live at peace with people. But look at, I am not trading in Christ to make someone happy. Paul says, by the way, hey, you know what? If I actually didn't believe in this whole like crucifixion thing and it's all about grace and all that, because if I was still just trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of God. I think it's a pretty wise statement to make. If you just want to make people happy. Strangely enough, being a servant of God is actually not your best place for that. I don't mean being a politician either. So, I mean, I'm not exactly sure what you could be to make everyone happy these days. That's like a clown. People are freaked out by them now. A policeman, certainly that ain't working. Working for the NHS, uh, that ain't working. You're like, I've had to wait eight hours. Oh, we're doing good today. You know, anyway, you get it. Let me move on. On the other way, yeah. though, does it mean that if we are liked by people or by some people, we are not portraying Jesus enough? It, it can mean that. It can. I mean, and you know what? I've said this before, but but the church we were at back in the states, there was a coven of witches that lived just north of us, and they hated us. They're the same ones that tried to kill Bill Johnson on the stage. Different, different ones. Probably different ones, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, huh, how about that? Um, you know, I think about my brother, he's in Chico, and he's a full-on preacher of the gospel the whole bit. But it's like, because he lives in the area where everybody wears camouflage and hunts, and they're all like sheriffs, it's like all of his ushers pack. I mean, and it's, it's you know, yeah, it's like, and I just can't even imagine if some guy tried to charge my brother about what happened. Because these guys are all trained on taking a guy down. You just pray that wouldn't happen because it would kind of really interrupt the service. Mm. you know. But yeah, but the whole point of this is these witches. Mm. They're like, we actually love this church and this church and we love the, the, the music they play at this church, but we hate your church. And I'm like, that's one of the nicest things mm. I've ever heard. Mm. I go, that alarms me because those are pretty main line, the ones that we were talking about. But it's like the three things that I think were supposed to be the biggest insults were the greatest things we ever heard. Mm. One was, this isn't church. This is like Bible study and like songs to, love songs to God. Mm. I'm like, that's about the nicest thing I think I've ever heard. Mm. You know? Did it make threats or anything for witches? They just, they just told you they didn't like you? Oh, dude, yeah. As a matter of fact, we got this like really fun thing about this side, which is like symbols that was slipped out of the door during our fourth, third service one day. I didn't even know what it was because I was like, does anyone read gibberish? 
And uh, so, you know, we just prayed. We're like, I'm not even going to worry about it. And it turned out it was one of the witches who was a guy and uh, who had gone to Bible college, for what it's worth, and just had a really horrible experience, whatever it is. And uh, ultimately, we were out street witnessing, and we got to sit and talk with this guy. And, and, and we did something that no one had done with before, and that was actually listen to what he went through. And I'm like, so are you really blaming God because these people did this? Well, God allowed it to happen. I'm like, God allowed you to breathe still, and you're actually hating him. And don't you think there's some patience in that? He ultimately gave his life to Christ. His name's Keani. And he was like this, you know, this, and he was like this total hippie crazy guy. And he was like, and then he became one of our best sound men at the church. And then it was two and a half years later, he said, you remember that, that piece of paper underneath? He says, I did that. I'm like, huh. All right, praise God. Mm. I'm like, all right, well, but you're not like there now, of course. He's like, no, you can Anyways, I just, okay, back in the thing. But you're right. And I, I by the way, if, this, if the standards sound harsh, it's because I say them to me. That makes sense. Like, if, if people hate God, love you, you might want to check yourself. And that's, and for me, I don't even say might. For me, it's if people hate God and they love you, something needs to change. Don't make them hate you. Just be more like Christ and then deal with it. Okay, chapter 7. Jesus, um, the centurion's servant, raises the boy from Naim, by the way, unique to this gospel. Uh, John the Baptist is checking in, going, are you really the guy? And then the sinful woman is forgiven. By the way, do you know where that woman is forgiven? At a feast, for what it's worth. So, uh, the widow from Naim, of course, is another great underdog. Uh, but it's important to look at chapter 7, verse 30. Can you see that? In 7, verse 30, uh, Jenna, could you read that verse? I've got the German translation. I'm not sure. Oh, read it in German. That would be awesome. And then John will translate because he's fluent in German. <laughs> yeah, he is. Oh, yeah. Uh, 30? Yeah, go ahead and read it in German. That would okay, be fun. Okay, cool. Äh, nur die Pharisäer und die Gesetzeslehrer machten im Kleinen zunichte den Gott für sie hatte. Sie haben sich nicht von Johannes taufen lassen. In John, the translation for that is. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for them themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Yeah. Anyway, so there you go. All right. Uh, so. Uh, and Jesus says they created a no-win situation. John came and he didn't eat bread and he didn't drink wine and they said he's demon-possessed. Because the son of man focus, of course, on this. Uh, he came eating and drinking, and they said, look, he's a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He goes, so how in the world are you going to win? You don't eat, you're demon-possessed, you do eat, you're a glutton and a drunkard. Uh, then Jesus has dinner at the Simon, uh, the Pharisee Simon's house, and that's where the woman comes and breaks her alabaster we sang about. Alright. I need to pick this up. You know what I'm saying? Or I'm just having a good time, but just the same. Okay. Women benefactors, chapter eight. And I'm just going to try to go with some of the things that are unique. Women benefactors, the women who actually Jesus was primarily sponsored by ladies. By the way, important to that. Um, he heals a little girl, but he doesn't say Talitha Kumi here. Do you remember which gospel actually translates all of these Aramaic phrases? Mark because Mark, the writer, the recipients appear to be people who aren't Jewish, by the way. And so he has to translate. Every time you read something that's in Aramaic and it's like, that's translated like Abba, for instance. Yeah, that's in Mark. Okay, so, 
uh, in chapter 9, Jesus is transfigured. Guess when his appearance was altered? Guess what he was doing? He was praying. Right. Jesus transfigured. And it says, and by the way, it says he took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, he was altered. Okay. Second section, 951. Jesus is heading down. As he's heading down, by the way, he actually sends 70 uh, unique to the Gospel of Luke, by the way. And by the way, they come back and they're jonesing on the fact that demons are subject to him. And you know what he says? He says, rejoice not that demons are subject to you. He goes, that is really not what it's about. But rather, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You, know, you should be more amazed that you're saved than you are that demons are subject to you. You know what happens when you, get sub- when you think you, the whole thing you focus on is demons are subject to you? You become all that in your head. But when you realize your name is written in heaven... Jesus is all that. Does that make sense? Jesus tells this story because of the forgiveness of the Good Samaritan, unique to Luke. Right? And boy, could there be an underdog greater than the Good Samaritan? Then Jesus has dinner at Mary and Martha's. Um, Jesus is praying, and it's in this gospel, as Jesus is praying in a certain places, disciples say, could you teach us, please hear me, they say, could you teach us to pray? Not teach us how to. Could you teach us to pray? And Jesus gives these parables. Like about a, you know, a friend in bed, but you're knocking on the door, and he doesn't want to get up. I don't want to get up and get you bread. But if you keep knocking, he's going to finally get up. And the whole idea of it is, you need to be diligent in your prayers. And this is the one again. You, it says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask? Then he has lunch at the Pharisee's house. Because that's what he does in this book is eat. Uh, chapter twelve, and I'm just trying to I'm trying to move quick because then I just want to ask these questions to close this. Um, he teaches on the human weakness of greed, the parable of the foolish man, the foolish rich man that goes. By the way, the, the remember the rich man, the sort of the Pharisee, the publican, like the tax collector and the Pharisee, and they both go. Remember what they both go to do? They both go to pray. The Pharisee's like, I'm all that. But the, uh, but the tax collector beat his breast. He couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He just said, please forgive me. And he goes, you know what's interesting? That's the one that really made the difference. Uh, heals a woman of spirit of infirmity. Um, heals a man of dropsy. By the way, take the lowly place unique to this one. The parables of the lost queen and the lost son. We call it the prodigal son. Those are unique to this. Because again, if you're going to redeem, you're redeeming the lost. Uh, ten lepers come to be healed to be cleansed only one comes back Jesus goes are you kidding me ten lepers and one guy comes back to say thank you happened to be a Samaritan by the way the only other time you see the guy uh, anyways I think the rest of it's kind of recorded uh, you know in, your, in, the, in the paper and I'm just trying to be sensitive to your time here but there is a very important note and when Jesus is descending on Palm Sunday unique to the Gospel of Luke and then Jesus is bawling his eyes out. Mm. He's crying. And he's not like single tear man stuff. This is, he is openly bawling. And what would it be like to look at somebody and know they're going down? And yet, no matter what you do, you're not going to change your mind. I've seen it. It's not good. Uh, I'm going to put this challenge to you. Chapter 22, when Jesus has the Passover meal, Jesus
Jesus says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in my Father's name. We'll talk about that on another day. But then he actually takes the cup and says, take this and drink after the meal, which means you know Jesus isn't going to drink of this cup because he told you he wasn't. A covenant is made. You agree to a person's terms when they offer you the cup. But Jesus isn't going to agree to their terms because God's covenant is always based on God's faithfulness, not on man's. Do you remember back in Genesis 15 when God splits the animal in half and then both people are supposed to walk through with their side of the bargain? God does and then consumes the whole thing so Abraham can. It's always about God's faithfulness. Every one of them would have pledged their allegiance to death that night to him and that would have broke the covenant but God didn't allow it to happen. He says, you drink of this, but I don't need to. Still a covenant. You're green in my terms. Jesus goes to the garden. What does he do to, in the garden? He prays, unique to the Gospel of Luke, should it surprise us, his sweat becomes like drops of blood. Mm. Wouldn't that mean, by the way, healing's more more emphasized, of course, in, in uh, Luke. Shouldn't that, by the way, it's in Luke that he told us that there's a gal that is really ill, and she's gone to every doctor and could get any better. Matthew, or, I'm sorry, Luke tells us, man, my profession is nothing compared to what Jesus said. Also, there's another character you don't see it in Jesus' trials until Luke, and that's Herod. According to the Gospel of Luke, Herod and Pilate were enemies until Jesus was brought into the situation. When Jesus stands before Herod, Herod has the dubious honor of being the one person to whom Jesus has nothing to say. And Herod was excited to see him. He had heard about all these you know, miracles and he wanted to see him do one. Ah, for what it's worth. Um, but it says on 2312... That very day, Herod became friends. Uh, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other, for they had previously been enemies. You know what makes enemies out of our friends out of enemies? A common enemy. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. A um, couple last things on this, and then I want to ask you the question. Forgive me for going so quick. I'm just trying to be sensitive. Um, when Jesus says, "Father, forgive them," they know not what they do. That's unique to Luke, because that's what a redeemer would do. He's hung between two thieves. One of them repents, unique to the Gospel of Luke, because he came to redeem. When he says, today you'll be with me in paradise, you're only going to find that in Luke. And of course, here he says, unique to the Gospel of Luke, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Last couple things. After raising from the dead, two guys are fleeing because they're afraid they're next. They're headed to a mouse. How does Jesus reveal himself there? to these guys he sits at a table and he breaks bread with them and then he disappears unique to the gospel of Luke that whole story Jesus appears to his disciples they don't believe he's for real so you know what Jesus says look at we're closing this now 24 verse um, 41 and while they still did not believe for joy and marvel he said to them do you have any food here So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb and he took it and ate it in their presence. Should it surprise us that's in Luke? Mm -hmm. Unique to the Gospel of Luke, this ends. Remember how Matthew ends? Go into all the world and make disciples. How does Mark end? Go into all the world and preach the Gospel. Two two distinct commands. Go and go. Luke says wait. Wait for what? I send the promise of my father. Terry, wait in Jerusalem. You're endued from power on high. What are you waiting for? Who are you waiting for? The Holy Spirit. So, go, go, stay. 
That's how those three Gospels end. Does that make sense? 